Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, it's Anna. Before we start this episode, I want to remind you there are just a few days left to contribute to Death, Sex, and Money and to have your donation matched by the Tao Foundation. And to say thank you so much for your support, we are sending everyone who donates any amount between now and the end of the year a Death, Sex, and Money sticker. We really appreciate your support so much. Okay, here's the show. I was a demon child. He suffered a lot. And that makes me sound like I'm fucking Jesus. Like I, I just <laughs> – You were suffering a lot and yeah, it was awful. Yeah, it was tough. This is Death, Sex, and Money. What were you looking for? Huh? Money? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. The dead know only one thing. It is better to be alive. And need to talk about more. Did you have sex To hell with sex. I'm Anna Sale. Earlier this year, we did an episode about near-death experiences. Bex Montz was one of the people I interviewed. He's a 23-year-old trans man who survived a suicide attempt, and he wrote into the show about it. Like, I I legitimately didn't think that anything was going to come of it because I just don't think that my life is that interesting. Um, Yeah, it's it's probably not going to go on air. This is Bex's mom, Katie Ryan. She knew about Bex's suicide attempt, but it wasn't something Bex shared with the rest of their family until the podcast came out. One of my niece's friends listened to it and recognized his name. I'm like, you used your whole name on that thing, you know, and this uh, podcast is kind of a popular podcast. I think you know that. I guess I didn't, like, think it through. (laughs) I was like, like, yeah, why not? It's fine. Was it fine? Yeah. I sort of figured they all assumed. Like, like, I've been, like, mentally ill since I was, like, 13 years old. Jesus Christ, I hope there's a suicide attempt in there somewhere or else I'm like, like, what have I been doing with the last couple of years, you know? (laughs) This is something that stayed with me about Bex after the first time we talked. He's really funny, even when he's talking about some of the darkest moments in his life. After I moved to California, I remembered Bex lives in the Bay Area, too. I wanted to meet him in person and meet his mom. 
Because Bex had told me that after he attempted suicide in 2014, when he woke up in a hospital room, the first thing he saw was his mom sitting in the corner. When I got to the emergency room, um, it was weird. He was in a pod by himself, and there was nobody in there taking care of him. And I didn't realize he wasn't conscious. Um, and I tried to wake him up, and he's a super light sleeper, and just... Touching him normally would have, like, bolted him upright. And I shook him, and I was, like, turning his head, and it was just floppy. And I was like, oh, shit, this is – he's unconscious. Katie's a doctor. She's an OBGYN. And she works at the hospital where Bex was treated. I've, you know, sat in that ICU with patients. Like, I've been in the room that he was in. Um, so it was um, – yeah, it's just surreal. Bex has struggled with depression since he was a kid. But that day, he took a lot of pills. He slit his wrists, too. Before he slipped into a coma, Bex called 911. That saved his life. After spending a few days in the hospital, Bex went back home to live with his mom. He wouldn't talk to me about what happened yeah. at home. I, I mean, I don't—yeah, I, I had a therapist that I—I I still have a therapist that I really, really like. And I see, like— twice a week and so I was talking to him and I sort of figured that you were like like you were there like you knew what ha- like you knew what happened like you you saw me like you yeah so it sort of felt like there's still parts that I don't know though I get I guess like you cut yourself and like what happened to the blood there was no dirty rags anywhere I couldn't find them anywhere like what did you do with them I don't know EMT cleaned up <laughs> they they came in they called the they called uh, some uh, some cleaning ladies and they came and scrubbed the whole house it was great You're lying. <laughs> no no I know I mean I I don't know I don't know like the reality is that I don't know like I don't know part of it like there's not a whole lot yeah from you and I've never talked about the thought process that led up to yeah I. Like, I want to try to figure out all this shit by myself. Like, that's my ideal. That's my inclination is, like, I can do this by myself. I can figure this out by myself, and it won't be a big deal. This tension between wanting independence and the comfort that comes with family support, that's something Bex is working through. He's still living at home with his mom. His older brother lives with them, too. It's been helpful living at home that it just, like... It means I have a place that I can go home to, which is super soothing um, when there's a lot of other issues going on in your life. Do you feel close to your mom, Bex? Yeah. Yeah. I think it started when dad died that, like, it just became, like, like no one else was around. Like, we moved and there was sort of no one else to talk to. I mean, they pretty much grow, grow up. You know, I was the only adult in the house until they became adults, so we all kind of treated each other like adults pretty early, for better or for worse. Katie was 44 when her husband, Rick Montz, died suddenly from a heart attack. Bex was nine. Back then, the family lived in Baltimore, where Rick was a gynecologic surgeon and oncologist at Johns Hopkins. He was super committed to his work. Um, and super committed to his family, but spent way more time at work than he did with his family. Just sort of worked like a crazy man most of the time. Um, yeah, he's the love of my life. Did you ever see your husband one-on-one with patients? Yeah, I worked with him. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of magic. 
What do you mean? It was just fun to watch him. Um, he was a really great surgeon, so it was fun to watch him in the operating room. And, um, yeah, he just um, – he was good at it. And Bex, what do you when you think about like a moment with your father when you were a child, like what's a what's a memory that that comes up? Um, a couple of them. Some of it is my dad used to come home and we would go running on Thursdays. That's when that's the only day of the week that dad would pick us up from school. And then if we got our homework done, then we had to go running and like really he got to go running and the kids came but it was almost always dark and it was like Baltimore, Maryland year round. So sometimes it was freezing cold and we went running when it was freezing cold and there was snow on the ground. I remember once like we had this like run where there was all this black ice and we just kept falling on our asses like no matter what the weather like – Sopping wet, we would go running, but it was mostly like in the dark. This one running, he path. wouldn't take them out in the middle of the night. So, but it, it was, was dark. But it, it was, was dark. dark. <laughs> it was dark. But it also wasn't like at eleven thirty at oh, night no, that no, no, he no. would get you guys. instead of putting you to bed. He would take you out for a run. No, no, no. Yeah, it was just yeah. You're like I am a good parent. I promise. <laughs> he was a good dad. Oh my god. <laughs> So you you and your husband were both in your 40s. You are, as an OBGYN, you're dealing with birth and the possibility of complications and death at work. Yeah. Your husband is dealing with death at work. Did you talk about your own deaths with each other? Yeah, um, we did. Um, Rick thought he was going to live kind of forever. He was the big runner and exerciser. I'm not. He was pretty sure I was going to die of heart disease because I just <laughs> never take care of myself. So he was pretty sure that I was going to die first. And we had talked about, you know, he said that he was never going to get married again. He was going to date. And we joked about it, that he'd have a series of different people. I'm like, please, just don't bring him home to the kids. Please don't bring him home to the kids. Really? Yeah, because like, I just don't need this rotating door of women coming into my children's lives. And no, we may, we talked about it a lot, actually. Um, and my family's here in San Francisco. And we joked that, you know, the only way that we're going to be back to San Francisco is if he died, I'd move back home. And that's what happened. He died and we moved back to San Francisco six months later. I kind of did like all the things you're not supposed to do. Sold a house, bought a house, quit my job, got a new job change my kids' schools, like all those things they tell you not to do in the first year after a death. We did all of them. Was that the right thing to do? Yeah, for sure. I had to. Yeah, I had to. I needed the help. I couldn't do it by myself. Coming up. I wish that I could have just, like, gone undercover for forever, and then, like, a year later, I, like, show up. I'm like, ha surprise! Like, I'm, I've been a dude the whole time. Bex talks about coming out to his mom as trans before he felt ready. Yeah, I think I probably would have waited until I was, like, more settled down so that I could actually, like, answer questions. Because I couldn't answer questions. Like, I couldn't articulate any of, like, are you okay with being called a daughter? Are you okay with being called a sister? Like, what does that mean to you? Like, and you were asking me these questions. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. (laughs) Yes, you were. (laughs) 
It's the end of a year that, good or bad, is leaving its mark on many of our lives. A lot of the internet has decidedly turned against 2016. But one bright spot I noticed was a series of tweets from Jihan Crowther, whom you met in our episode called Why You're Not Having Sex. She's noticed that as a Black woman, her opportunities to have sex are much better when she leaves the U.S. And she talked to me about that on the show. It was really, it felt really, really scary. It felt like, I I think I, I don't know, I think I expected a lot of like, just kind of a bad response to that. And I think I just felt um, relieved and surprised that the inverse happened. I called up Jihan for an update because as she said in her tweets, coming on the show to talk about something really personal ended up kicking off a lot of good in her year. There's like, I remember reading something where Cheryl Strait said something like, if you walk into the light and speak your truth, like you'll find that you're not there alone. And that's exactly what happened. And it was Mm. really um, kind of amazing. And it kind of led to um, other opportunities to write things and And it sort of ultimately ended up, I mean, it's sort of, you can't really draw a straight line to like my new job, but you kind of can (laughs) to like, um, um, I'm writing for um, a new um, HBO TV show that's being run by like a a hero of mine. I wasn't sort of, I didn't think I would sort of land (laughs) in a place like that, kind of starting with just kind of telling the truth about things that are hard to talk about. Gian says she's writing for a show with Alan Ball, the creator of Six Feet Under. All this happened less than a year after she decided to quit her full-time admin job to finally try to support herself by writing. She's still not dating much, but after her 2016, Gian says she's not too worried about it. I don't feel hopeless about it but at all. Um, and that's just maybe just me ignoring history or like ignoring my own experience. But there's also like no reason not to. I mean, I think even me ending up writing full time is something that like also I spent a lot of years hoping it would happen and it finally did. And I, there was no reason to expect it. And so I kind of feel the same way about relate, the relationship um, piece where I'm like, well, there's no reason to expect it, but there's no reason not to. One of the pieces Jihan wrote this year was for Jezebel. We posted it on our Facebook page. It was called, What Dating Abroad Taught Me About Stateside Racism. And on a personal note, I want to thank all of you for your support for the show and for me during 2016. I shed a life that I knew and loved for this whole new world of parenthood and California that I'm really excited by, but just getting used to. You have shared your stories with me and with each other, like Jihan did. Stories about what you've experienced and how you've gotten through. So in this next year, let's keep doing more of this. Listening to each other and pushing each other to be more honest, brave, humble, and kind. I need this. I think we all do. Happy New Year. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks. But they were healthy, whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. 
I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex, and Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Bex Montz says losing his dad was really hard. But he remembers feeling depressed even before that, as a really young kid, and not understanding why. I got really sad when I was a little kid. Like, I was in bed late at night getting very sad and having to, like, attribute it to something. I remember, like, one of your friends died. Oh, yeah. And I would always attribute it to that because that was, like, the one, like, bad dead thing that I knew happened that I knew was, like, acceptable for me to be sad about. And he cried at the end of every movie. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and it just was this emotional outburst at the end of a movie. And then he would just be in tears. After his dad died, Bex continued to struggle with depression. He says junior high and high school were a disaster. He hadn't come out as trans yet. And... I, yeah, I was just, like, fucking miserable and just wanted it to be, like, over with. What was your plan for when high school was over? What was the, like, fantasy? Oh, boy. Um, I was going to go straight to college and then go to med school. I was going to be a doctor. Like, I couldn't wait to get to medical school. Could not wait. What Um, do you think that was about? I mean, Freud would have a fucking field day, but, like, I'm sure some of it was dad stuff. And some of it was that, like, medicine was how I was taught. Like, this is how you have a job that you find interesting, where you can help other people, and you can constantly be curious, and, like, medicine is how you do that. Like, medicine is that job. And so it felt really right and, like, the right thing to do. Bex went away to college, but he started drinking a lot. His grades started to slip. He was really depressed and struggling with his gender identity. He talked to a few friends at school about it, but wasn't ready to tell his family. But his mom could tell something was going on. He had been talking to me for a while about getting an LGBT counselor. I'm like, this is a great idea. And I was online trying to find resources. He had had burned out at mental health on campus. It just wasn't – it just was – totally dysfunctional. Um, and I was trying to find resources in the community. I'm online, da-da-da-da. And I, and I was visiting, and we're driving, and he brought it up again. And I probably had talked to somebody at work 
because I use my coworkers as therapists instead of actually getting a real therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> Super so I talked to, talk to one of my coworkers, and I must have like said maybe maybe it's something more because he was self-identifying as lesbian at that time, and. I thought maybe it's something more than that. Maybe it's bigger than this. Um, and um, we're, so we're driving and he brings up the idea again about getting an LGBT counselor. And I just kind of looked over and I'm like, are you thinking of transitioning? And he goes, mom, you can't just like ask people that out of nowhere. You can't just like be like asking stuff like that. You can't do that. And then he started crying hysterically. And I was like, oh, so I guess we know the answer to this. Like I cr- like, okay, one, you're not supposed to ask that fucking question. <laughs> like, 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 let me come out to you. Jesus goddamn Christ. And, and I think that I had, like, also, like, recently bought, like, dude's clothing. I was, like, trying to be, like, semi-secret about trying it a little bit. Like, there's this trial period that I wanted and I didn't get it because this fucking asshole, like – Asks me whether I'm trans. And, like, I'm not going to, like, look her in the eyes and be like, no, I am not considering this. But also, like, I don't want to say yes. I wasn't ready to come out. And I was out. And I was totally out. Did it feel like a relief after crying or no? Uh, no. Because it was – coming out becomes its whole like a whole thing in and of itself. And – it was just, it was super stressful. It was just more stress. It was super, super stressful. And it felt like your mom was like forcing, like speeding out the momentum of everything before you were ready to share. Yeah. 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 It felt, it felt like I hadn't f- like 100% decided that I was going to do this thing. And I basically had to make a decision. I didn't force you into it, though. I just asked if you were thinking about it. Like, you don't – okay, if you're not trans, you probably never think about transitioning. So in saying, yeah, I'm thinking about it, I basically would be coming out to you. And you as a mother, Katie, you're Googling LGBT counselor. You're trying to find the way in to be helpful and loving. And, like, to hear Beck say, like – what you said to me in that moment was the exact wrong thing to say. Like, how does that feel? Um, it doesn't bother me that much. Nothing yeah. was right. <laughs> like nothing I did was right. Um, and he really – he never asks for help. And the fact that he kept asking about getting an LGBT counselor. So, yeah, I knew something big bigger was happening. It just it, – things were desperate and it needed to be addressed if that was it. And Yeah. And I mean I don't hold he it. He needed help. Yeah. I don't hold it against – hold it against you. It's just like for sure not the ideal way to go about it. But also like nothing about that situation was ideal. Nothing like – like nothing about – a lot of parts of my life have been ideal. Yeah. These gender issues are the smallest problems we've faced together. Well, yeah. Yeah. They for feel sure. small? Ugh, they're minuscule <laughs> for me compared to the other issues that have the mental health issues.
Those mental health issues were why Bex eventually dropped out of college. He moved back home with his mom, got sober, and got top surgery. It was after all this that Bex tried to kill himself. He didn't tell his mom how bad he was still feeling. That's not my inclination at all, and particularly when I'm super depressed. I don't want to be talking to anybody, and so I don't. And Katie says that's made her question everything. I never know what's real, what's not real, and what's okay, what's not okay. That I, you know, even when it feels like things are good, I don't trust it because it's just safer not to trust it and to just kind of keep my eyes open and think and wait and watch and try to be there. Do you feel like you're able to watch Bex and try to keep keep him safe? Um, I've learned that I can't keep him safe. He doesn't um, share enough. He doesn't um, ask for help from me. So I, I, I know intellectually that providing, you know, room and board and, you know, access to a car, that those things are helpful for him. But I can't keep him safe. I can't do that. He has to do that. Do you, do I haven't been able to do it. I failed. Yeah. So you've learned – you've had to learn that. Yeah, I had to learn. I thought that, you know, sleeping on a mattress outside his bedroom door and taking the door off the door jam would keep him safe. And it meant that, you know, he wasn't – yeah, it meant nothing. It meant that I was pissing him off because he didn't have a door to his bedroom and I was sleeping on the floor outside his bedroom because I couldn't trust him. And it didn't work. Your face, Bex, is such a big cringe right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because it's – I mean, it's true. Like, I can just – I haven't made things easy on anybody. And, like, that's obviously not a choice. Like, I don't, like, purposely wake up in the morning and be like, today I'm going to be an asshole. But it also doesn't feel good, you know. Do you think about being a parent, Bex? Uh – not a lot, no. Um, I don't think that I could make the sacrifices required to be a good parent. I think that it's really hard to be a good parent. I think that, like, mom has done a great job with it, but I don't think I would be able to do it. Like, there's this thing that you love desperately and you always want to be around, and progressively over the course of its life, as it gets more interesting, you have to let it go. And, like, that sounds awful. Like, that sounds horrible. Like, both of you guys are fucking idiots. Like, that sounds awful. <laughs> and, like, yeah, I just, I think I'm too self-centered. Do you think being a parent would take you out of yourself? That it would force you to stop spending so much time perseverating about things that don't need to be perseverated about? Um, and fill your day with other stuff? I think that's idealistic. I don't think so. <laughs> no, because it's not – like, I, yeah, I think that it's idealistic. I think that, like, realistically, it would be that way for a while, and I would try really hard. But in reality, like, I'm going to deal with depression and anxiety and my issues around gender for the rest of my life. That sucks, and – until I figure out how to deal with that in a constructive way, 
there is no way I'm going to bring another human being who has no say in it. There's no way I'm going to bring someone else into it. If someone wants to come in on this, like, fine. That's that's my dating profile. If someone wants to come in on this. <laughs> but, like, I'm not going to force anyone, you know? I had to say when you said, like, you guys are fucking crazy, like, I I think I have a five-month-old baby, um, and hearing you, I have related to you, Katie, more than I expected to in this conversation, mm-hmm. and the, um, this, the, 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 the puzzle of having so much love to give to, this, to your child, but needing to find just the right slots where they'll let you give it. Yeah, and that sometimes that you try, and then that you end up repelling them like the wrong side of a magnet, is such a daunting thing. I mean, I t- parenting is it's crazy, you know. And obviously, I take care of patients while they're pregnant, and they think that this is the most complicated time of their life. And it, it, you're. It, like I can't even I, – I just let them think that this is the most complicated time of their life because the reality is just literally unbelievable of the um, responsibilities of being a parent. And it's just a huge job. Huge. And you can mess it up. It's been 14 years since Katie lost her partner in parenting her husband, Rick. The anniversary of his death was just about a month ago. Katie, have you dated? No. Has that been a choice? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't understand it fully. Um, And I probably do need to see a therapist about it. Um, I just want to note, you've said that like five times so far. Maybe you should actually do it. (laughs) Um... (laughs) I think initially I used the kids as an I, I did use the kids as an excuse, and I really felt strongly that um, I didn't want to be bringing random people through their lives. They went through enough, and they didn't have to do that. But now my kids are adults, and I have no excuse, and I still come up with excuses. It's just I don't know. How do you think about where you are in the grieving process? Um, it's been you know it's been a really long time, and. My life has been good without him, and I never thought I'd be able to say that, and it really has. Um, so it's sort of surprising. Um, but yeah, it's changed who I am, for sure. I, like, I don't think there's any way it can't. I'm a different person now. There was um, part of me that was just completely crazy and wild about him, and it was hard in the first years. And I think... It dawned on me one day that I think that that girl left me. I think that it was too painful for part of me to want to be with him. And I just had to let her go. And she left. And it, like, I didn't know this happened. Um, but one day I just knew that she wasn't bugging me, that she wasn't um, making my life hard. And it was kind of um, a relief. She just wasn't there torturing me anymore because it was bad. It just, yeah, it just felt like like I just wanted to be with him and there was no way I could do it. And yeah, she just went. When did she go? 
It was a couple of years probably after he died, at least a couple of years, four or five years probably. It's not a bad thing. But it's not super great either. <laughs> And Bex, what do you, when you think about your mom and what you want for her, what do you think? As long as she's happy, she can do whatever the hell she wants. Like, the most I can do is, like, try not to get in the way of her happiness. But, like, I know I know I will. Like, I know. No, I don't think you do. Okay, when I'm deeply, deeply depressed, which I inevitably yeah. will be again, that will get in the way of your happiness. And, it, like, so the most I can do is sort of, like, mitigate that circumstance. By taking care of yourself. Yeah, by trying to take care of myself. This is just me being self-centered. It's just like, to take care of my mom, I need to take care of me. It's all about me. <laughs> We've been talking about motherhood for too long. Come on. It's... Come bring it back. Come bring it back. That's Bex Montz and his mom, Katie Ryan. They live in San Francisco. Bex is reapplying to college programs now. He's thinking about pursuing a degree in public health. Katie hasn't yet made a therapy appointment. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. The team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. And please, if you like the show, give us a review on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store, search Death, Sex, Money, and click on Write a Review. By sharing your thoughts, you'll help new listeners find the show. And while you're checking out the podcast feed, look for Bex's first appearance on the show in the episode When I Almost Died. He offered some advice to other suicide survivors, and he had this to say about his mom. I went with the death. Uh, that's probably a really bad way to put that. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I really love her. I, I think that she's amazing. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.